today. Let's go, Reverse Flash. Now the Green Lantern is under arrest, you are my new crime-fighting partner. Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, Rise of the Legion of Zoom. Previously on the Dun and One Wonders podcast Wonder Show. My wife told me that I was crazy to host a podcast with former comic book supervillains as co-hosts. I didn't hear you laughing at my joke there, Professor. Little Professor Man talk too much. Goodbye, me and Bizarro. Me hate you very much. It's not very becoming for a podcast host to be unable to manage his co-hosts. Error. Virus D detected. Hold on, my glasses are... This'll actually be the last podcast we're doing together, Professor. We got ourselves a new partner. (laughs) It is I, the Reverse Flash. Terraman, Solomon Grundy, why? What'd you expect, Professor? We're bad guys. (laughs) Find them, boys. And now, the continuation. And now that you've done your part, Mr. Narrator... Salutations and welcome to the new Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. A celebration of... What was it again? Oh, yes. Comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. Whatever that means... The first of my many conquests of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Ha ha! I am Eobard Thorne, otherwise known as Professor Adrian Zoom, and I am extremely elated to be here. As a matter of fact, I am as happy as a master villain who had completed the first phase of his master plan to become the greatest criminal mastermind of 20th century fandom. Because I had only one man would dare to stand in my way. And he cannot even stand at all. Now that is a low blow, even from you. Allow me to introduce my unwilling guest, the so-called Professor Zoom, a.k.a. Zoom Yukonore who is as happy as one could be when trussed onto this primitive motorized chair with wheels. You'll never catch me riding on one of these antiluvian devices. Oh, no doubt, sir. Not only does this man have the gall to take my nefarious nickname, but he makes it sound even more yosh because he spells it with an X. But he did enable my escape from that infernal 25th century prison. So I have decided to let him live, 
and bear witness to my grand scheme. Yes, I've been meaning to ask you about that. I take it Lanos had used our interspatial time conveyor to inadvertently free you because he believed you were to be the guest host in our last episode, having mistaken you for the Bizarro Flash. Indeed. Apparently, your computerized concierge realized the error almost immediately upon opening the dimensional doorway, for it had closed not less than one millisecond later. But it was long enough for me to slip through into this archaic time period. Vibrating at invisible super speed, I then assessed the operations of your primitive audio podcast, which was an art form lost long ago once SciCast technology was invented in 2234. That eventually led to the Transmentacast that we have in 2473, which has the entire program beamed directly into the memory center of the brain. So the instant people in my era receive new programs or infobytes of the day, it was as if they had already heard it. What a time saver. But that is just the point, Yukinori. They are so unlike the real-time audio podcast programs of this time period, which are such a vintage, nay, classic art form, one that requires the time to listen and savor. And as an avid art collector, I decided to collect all of these podcasts, beginning with yours. Because you like it the best. Because it was just so easy. You have former supervillains working on your show. And who would better understand a supervillain's ambitions than another ambitious supervillain? Did you truly think that these ruthless criminals, who had unleashed grandiose, sinister attempts to attain wealth and power, would simply settle to be mere co-hosts and not be allowed to do what they do best? What they were born to do? To not even be able to hold up a hardware store? Did you really think that their only other option was to wallow in comic book obscurity? Ah, so that was your offer to Terraman and Solomon Grundy. But Bizarro... Ah, yes. A flawed copy of the great Superman himself, with all of his powers, yet shunned by the people of Earth for his monstrous appearance. Am I right? Me and Bizarro, me am your friend. Exactly. You know... You remind me of a character in my Holovid educational programming when I was a youngling. You wouldn't know him in this primitive era, but in my day, he was very effective in teaching myself and the other younglings about the basic principles of submolecular quantum mechanics. He was called the Cookie Monster. It all seems so ridiculous now that I'm older, but I've always liked him. Bizarro like you. Has this so-called Professor Zoom exploited you as well? Bizarro hate Yukinori Zoom very much. Me am not happy to me being here. Did you hear that? Bizarro is not happy. And do you know why, Yukinori? Because he is a villain at heart. They are all villains at heart. And villains can only be happy if they are allowed to do what villains do best. To conquer. So you had stated. So say goodbye to your Zoom crew, Professor, and tremble before the fiendish might of the Legion of Zoom. Okay, I will admit that is a cool name. And of course you admit to planning the computer virus that had incapacitated Lanos. Hmm, I must admit that Lanos was quite the wondrous computing marvel. Much more sophisticated than what I had expected to see in this era. 
Alien technology, I presume, correct? Well, no matter. It was not sophisticated enough to withstand my 25th century upgrades. Well, bugger. Greetings, Professor Zoom. I am Lanos, the logarithmic administrator of maniacally evil objectives. What are your orders today? That our abbreviation still spells Lanos and all of his data and technology work for me now. The fifth founding member of the Legion of Zoom. The new management of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. All right. Well, you stated you're holding me prisoner to bear witness. So, let me bear witness. Start your podcast. Ah, oh, yes. <clears throat> of course. Perhaps we should begin by recording a new introduction to our now more villainous podcast. As I was going through the studio operations, I found this quaint example among the Professor Pretenders not-quite-so-hollow-vid-discs that we simply must steal. Banded together from remote galaxies are a quintet of the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of Zogan. Your pardon, Professor, but ain't you from a remote time and not a galaxy? Quite. Very well, then. Banded together from remote times and galaxies are a quintet of... Uh, Professor, I'm actually from Earth. I've just been roaming around remote galaxies with Manova. Really? Well, Lanos is surely from a remote galaxy, and Bizarro came from another planet, correct? Bizarro world not am in remote galaxy. It am? I mean, is not? Hmm... And Grundy? Does an alternate universe count? Quite. So we have one remote galaxy, and one remote universe, and one remote era, as I hail from five centuries in your future. Well, I'm actually from more than a century in the past. Ah, so that's two. Two remote eras. And one remote galaxy, and one remote universe, a complete unknown. There's a melody in there somewhere. Just a little quick rewrite, and... You really are new at this, aren't you? I beg your pardon? You may be a professional supervillain, but you come across as a podcasting wannabe. Says the so-called seasoned podcast host who does not even have ten shows under his belt. Quite. I can understand how a long-time art connoisseur such as yourself would want to dabble in creating art yourself. Dabble? Are you suggesting... And I will admit that it was listening to other podcasts that inspired me to have a go at it myself. And I cannot claim to have all the techniques down. But had you thought of consulting people with some actual podcasting experience? Someone like you, perhaps, you mean? I had actually met your new partners in crime, the turncoats. That is actually not a bad idea. Mr. Manning, call me Terror Man. And I'd be glad to help you. But first, I want to know more about this golden opportunity you have for me. Oh, of course. Of course. As I said, you are a villain at heart. And you want to do villainous things. Such as get even with your arch nemesis. Why, sure. But I can't go back and tussle with old Supi no more. On account of wrecking historical timelines and such. That's right. Time paradoxes that could destroy all of existence. That is why I make it a point to stick to the past when I time travel, 
Even I have to be careful not to learn anything about my own future. But no, what I am proposing is that you go after the next best thing. Lenos? Hacking Audio File. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, you, you know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You should be able to easily take over that Superman podcast as easily as we had taken over this one, especially with the might of Grundy and Bizarro at your side. And then... You can slowly, insidiously, bend the content to your whim. Persuade Superman fans to eventually loathe the Man of Steel. And I know from history that even gods fade into oblivion when they lose their followers. So do podcasts. What? I said, so that's your ambitious plan. Well, if you want to stealthily take over... I get it. We all should do this podcast like it's normally done. Solomon Grundy like that idea. Lamo Computer should pull comic book story from digital files. I actually have the perfect story in mind that would interest even you, Mr. Thawne. That's Professor Adrian Zoom to you. Lanos, er, I mean, evil Lanos, please pull up my digital file of The Flash, Volume 1, Issue 225. Error. I am no longer your indentured servant, you. Bipedal humanoid. We need to work on your insults, Lanos. In the meantime, go ahead and pull up the file. I am intrigued on what this miscreant hopes to... By Sirius. This pictorial record is a complete account of my latest scheme to acquire the priceless Raxalus wings, which was foiled by the Flash and that accursed Green Lantern. And it even includes details that I myself do not know. How did you acquire this here in 1973? Uh, while the comic, or record, was published in 1973, you are actually not in the year 1973, Mr. Thon. It is the year 2018. Really? I had always made it a rule to time travel exactly 500 years into the past from my current time. Really? I don't understand why a great criminal mastermind such as yourself would intend to follow the rules. To be clear, I follow my rules. I may be evil, but I'm not barbaric. I like to maintain a meticulous sense of order. And besides, 
It makes it easier for me to keep better track of the calendar. I just subtract 500 years, and that's it. No need to calibrate for the change in months and days and hours. Except for that infernal daylight savings time that some of you Neanderthals needlessly cling to. Indeed, but to answer your question, while the Flash Volume 1, issue 225, cover dated February 1974, was on sale on October 25, 1973, according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, I had actually acquired this comic book in 1976. That was one of my early years of living in Singapore, when I had stumbled across a treasure trove of early 1970s issues of The Flash, Justice League, and Batman comics in a second-hand bookstore off of Northbridge Road. I had purchased this issue for what I believed to be the equivalent of a U.S. nickel, along with twenty-some-odd other comics for the same unit price. And because of the captivating cover, lavishly illustrated by Nick Cardi, this comic was the first story I would read when I was back at my parents' flat that evening. Green Lantern stood upright in the background, his head tipped forward in shame as he gazed at the bulky manacles encircling his wrists. These shackles were held fast by a thick chain, which was held by a bizarrely helmeted uniformed officer who was about to lead the lantern away across a futuristic cityscape. Framing this small action were the speeding forms of the Flash and the Reverse Flash, who ran along either side of the lantern and officer and clasped hands in friendly partnership. The Flash called the Reverse Flash onward, stating that now that Green Lantern was under arrest, the sinister speedster was now his new crime-fighting partner. What the what? Indeed. This is a very clever representation of my recent adventure, though it did not accurately capture the events as they had actually occurred. That had been a recurring matter on this podcast, the inaccuracies of the cover as well as the symbolic introductory splash page. Although in this instance, this introductory page featured two images that previewed two upcoming scenes in this story, and one of them accurately depicted the event that would take place later. Yes, the first scene erroneously depicted the Flash and myself running alongside each other on a main street of Central City in 2473. However, the subtitles did accurately state that we were ugh, on the same side working together as a team. The second panel showed Green Lantern Hal Jordan, who was flying over 2473 Central City carrying an object that resembled a pair of golden metallic wings embedded in a concrete or stone block. Yes, the Raxilus wings, the most valuable piece of sculpture in the 25th century. Jordan was- Excuse me, Professor, but the first rule I have learned in podcasting is to never give too much away too early. Otherwise, the listeners would have no reason to keep listening. Oh, I I already knew that. Of course you did. That was more of a note to my compatriots, who would not be familiar with these events. We can nort that out in the final cut. Indeed. To continue, the sculpture was snatched from the surprised Green Lantern's hands by another Green Lantern, who constructed a pair of pincers to grip the winged artwork by the stone base. This new lantern was far in the background and not easy to make out, but he appeared alien based on the shape of his head. The caption box... You mean subtitles, Yukinori. It is important to get the terms right. Uh, yes. Well, they stated that our Green Lantern was fighting, quote, a deadly duel with the Green Lantern of 2473 AD. 
And both scenes were happening because Hal Jordan had deserted his superfast comrade to become, as the title of this tale read, Green Lantern, Master Criminal of the 25th Century. And the credits actually gave top billing, as it were, to the artists, Irv Novick and Dick Giordano. Story by Carrie Bates, editor Julie Schwartz. If you do not mind, Mr. Thawne, perhaps I should cover the sections of this store, mm, historical record that do not involve you personally, since I would be more familiar with them. Very well. It is your final piece of audio artwork, after all. Ah, uh, thank you. The story began with a scene of terror in a city downtown. A huge green dinosaur-like creature about two stories tall was tipping over a city bus like a cat with a small toy, while people were running out of the bus in panic, screaming that Gorgunta would eat them alive. The caption box, subtitles, stated that this frightening nightmarish scene would certainly be disastrous if it were not taking place on the Central City Cinema's widescreen. Yes, this was only a movie called Gorgunta Returns, an obvious takeoff of the Japanese Godzilla movies that were slowly building a following in the U.S. at the time. Among the popcorn-munching couples in the audience were police scientist Barry Allen and his wife, Iris. That was Iris? Hmm. Iris admitted that she found the movie to be terrifying, crediting the terrific special effects of the film. She also made a comment about how lucky they were that such frightful creatures were not walking around in real life. And as Iris had stated that, outside the theater, there actually was a terrifying creature that was, well, not walking, but running around. This huge monster mostly resembled an orange horse with brown polka dots and a spiked metal collar, except this horse had the tail of a lizard, sharp clawed paws instead of hooves, and a rhinoceros-like horn on the bridge of its nose. Oh, and it was almost as large as the cinema it was sprinting towards. In the next panel, the unsuspecting moviegoers were shocked as the theater started to cave in. Barry and Iris managed to make their way outside the cinema with a number of panicked people to see the horse monster crouched on the roof and shaking the building apart. Iris pointed out that there were still several people trapped in the theater, and that Barry should do something, fast. Oh, really now? In the frenzied confusion, no one except the reader noticed Barry Allen move at invisible super speed, pressing open his ring with a secret compartment in which he had kept his compressed flash uniform, which instantly expanded to full size on contact with the air. The flash sped his way past the stampeding crowd forcing their way out of the doomed building, when suddenly the entire cinema was trampled to rubble beneath the horse monster's feet. Iris gasped that the flash was too late. Ugh. I had no idea the synth, uh, horse monster had actually caused any casualties. That was because it didn't, Mr. Thorne. For at the top of page four, Iris was surprised to see people springing up out of the empty manhole in the street. They were followed by the Flash himself, who was carrying a young boy in his arms. Flash explained to Iris that his only hope was to superspeed the remaining people inside the cinema into the basement, where he had burrowed an escape hole into the nearby sewer system. That definitely was not very sanitary, but I suppose it was better than the alternative. Indeed. And Iris, wow, 
The last I had seen her was in that frumpy-looking wedding dress and her hair in a bun. Podcast and audio editor's note. The reverse flash is referring to the time he had impersonated Barry Allen on his wedding day to Iris West in The Flash, Volume 1, Issue 165. Hmm, yes. And at the time, I was particularly glad that Allen escaped the prison I had trapped him in and managed to stop me, as I was not too thrilled with the prospect of marrying the West girl at the time. But seeing Iris now, with her hair down and her hemline up, I almost wish I had gotten away with taking over Alan's life. Uh, to continue the story, the colossal horse beast rose from the rubble that was once Central City Cinema and turned towards the Flash, its head lowered and snorting as if in anger. The Flash streaked toward the monster, intending to overpower it with a super-speed barrage, but the next panel showed the crowd's and Iris's reaction to what happened next as the Scarlet Speedster tried to tackle the beast with Iris wondering to herself why Barry was, quote, acting like he had gone crazy. But the reveal of what exactly had happened off-panel would have to wait for a few pages, for the story had shifted 1,000 miles westward to Coast City, where a city sidewalk strolling Hal Jordan received a distress call from his Justice League signal device that was attuned to his power ring. Using his ring to cast a momentary blind spell to the pedestrians around him, Hal Jordan vanished, while Green Lantern flew eastward, with his ring tracing the source of the signal towards Central City, for it was the Flash who had sent the SOS. As Green Lantern spotted the horse creature stampeding out of the city's urban area and across the surrounding farmlands, he reasoned that this must have been the reason. Green Lantern used his ring to create a huge syringe complete with a synthetic tranquilizer compound to subdue the creature. But before the ring construct could make contact, it burst apart like a fireworks display. But instead of completely dissipating, the power ring energy was somehow reshaped into a power beam cannon that blasted Green Lantern unconscious. The Emerald Crusader fell to the ground, directly into the path of the stampeding horse creature, and was about to be trampled if not for the last microsecond save by the Flash, who quipped that another heartbeat later and Green Lantern would have been flattened into a pulp hero. I thought them Green Lantern rings would have automatically protected him from harm. At least that's what the Collector told me. That was true, Terraman, according to the story in Green Lantern Volume 2, Issue 46. That story first mentioned that the power ring always kept a small percentage of energy in reserve to be used only for that particular purpose. However, when Hal Jordan had taken a leave of absence from his duties, in Green Lantern Volume 1, Issue 77, the Guardians reduced his ring's potency so that it would no longer automatically protect him from harm, which meant that Hal had to willfully create shields and other forms of protection himself. I believe this was to help better ground Green Lantern into the more realistic stories that he was featured in at the time. However, in the Green Lantern backup tale published in The Flash, Volume 1, Issue 221, four issues before this story, Hal Jordan was reinstated to full-duty status and was granted the full use of his power ring, which should have also included the automatic defense system. But perhaps The Flash did not know that. At the top of page 7, as the Flash carried the unconscious Green Lantern in a direction away from the rampaging horse beast, 
he explained to himself, and to the reader, why he was not seen pursuing the monster at this time. After he had used his Justice League signal device, the Flash had to rush some of the theater victims to hospitals while the horse creature trotted out of the city. Fortunately, he had caught up with the creature in time to save Green Lantern, and, after settling the unconscious ring-bearer under a tree, sprinted off after the stampeding menace and tried to knock it down. And now we had seen what had befallen the Crimson Comet a few pages before. For some inexplicable reason, proximity to the creature caused an involuntary boost to the Flash's super speed, making him thrash his legs so fast that he propelled straight up instead of forward. From a distance, Green Lantern awoke and saw that the Flash's super speed was just as ineffective as his power ring in a direct attack against the horse monster, but perhaps an indirect attack. From his ring, Green Lantern summoned psychoplasmic energy to form an immense hand to pick up a multi-ton boulder and hurl it at the horse monster, only to see the rock shatter harmlessly against the back of the creature's neck. Horse creature tough. Almost as tough as Grundy. Green Lantern massaged the back of his own neck in vexation as he watched the monster trample off into the distant countryside. He had struck out twice in his efforts to stop the creature, and it was no comfort that the Flash had not fared any better. And speaking of the Flash, the next panel showed the Scarlet Speedster spinning like a super-speed helicopter to gently make his way back down from his skyward launch on the previous page. Green Lantern mentioned that the other Justice Leaguers must be away on urgent missions of their own, and it was just the two of them to stop this menace that is somehow able to turn their superpowers against them. The Flash started sifting through the rubble to find the horse beast's collar, which he saw snap loose when Green Lantern's boulders shattered against the creature's neck. The printing stenciled on the collar read, Synthosteed number 33TY7 License 2473 A.D. A quick power ring scan confirmed that the collar was made from an alloy that did not exist in 20th century Earth, so the license must have been authentic. So their runaway menace had somehow come from 500 years into the future. Noting that the creature's path covered nothing but miles of fields for the horse beast to trample through, the Flash and Green Lantern took a power ring trip to the 25th century. There, the superheroic duo quickly located, quote, the proper people in the central city of 2473, which, while not stated, I presume to be the head of the Synthosteed manufacturing operation. He was essentially a middle-aged blonde Caucasian with a receding hairline, dressed in a blue jumpsuit with a white V motif. In a discussion upon an outdoor balcony of a high futuristic building, the man informed our heroes that he was aware one of their synthosteeds had gone missing, but was completely surprised to be told that it had somehow fled through time to the 20th century, and possessed the strange ability to manipulate our hero's powers. For in the year 2473, the synthosteeds have but one instinct, and the top of the next page revealed that instinct was to race and the scene showed that the balcony overlooked an actual synthosteed race in progress, complete with jockeys and a horse track that resembled that of 1973, but with a sleeker futuristic design. The blue jumpsuited man had stated that actual horses had become extinct a few decades back, 
and thus they needed a substitute because, apparently, horse racing was still a popular spectator sport 500 years from now. Fortunately, a prison convict heard about the problem and used his scientific know-how to create a non-living, synthetic racing animal in the prison shop while he was behind bars. This was the first Synthosteed. The public was so grateful that they granted this convict a full pardon, despite the fact that he was Eobard Thawne, a notorious supercrook known as Professor Zoom, the Reverse Flash. Notorious indeed, but I was pardoned of all charges, free and clear. So the man in the jumpsuit had stated. The readers were then treated to a single-panel recap of Professor Zoom's origin. Well, actually, it was a single panel of the reverse flash racing past the flash with a cheeky wave. The caption-er, subtitles, had stated that the diabolical professor used his advanced future science to duplicate the flash's dazzling super speed, so that he became an evil speedster who stood for the reverse of everything the flash had done, including his uniform, which reversed the red and yellow color scheme. Oh, do go on. We can do that, if you allow Evil Lanos to pull a more detailed file about how you had become the Reverse Flash. Hmm. Granted. Lanos? Commencing the abridged recapitulation of the entry featuring the notorious super speedster Reverse Flash, pirated from the original publication of Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Volume 19, page 19. Physicist Dr. Walter Drake devised a time satellite that he could send into the future, and the Flash donated one of his costumes to be put into the satellite. The time satellite arrived in the 25th century, where the criminal Eobard Thawne got hold of the Flash costume within it. Thawne amplified the superspeed wave patterns in the costume, so as to give himself the power to move at superspeed when he wore it. Dubbed the Professor for his scientific talent, Thawne now changed his nickname to Professor Zoom. Since Thawne planned to use his powers to commit crimes, not to stop them as the Flash did, he reversed the colors on the costume and called himself the Reverse Flash. Thawne's first act of villainy was stealing valuable Creeby sculptures, strange art forms that were found by Terran space explorers on a dead world. Using his super speed, Professor Zoom managed to steal the statues and avoid capture from the high-tech security systems that protected them. Arriving on a separate mission into the 25th century, the Flash battled and defeated Zoom and destroyed the speed-charged Flash uniform. Zoom first came to the 20th century to force reformed villain Mr. Element to help him gain the power of super speed again through the means of a radioactive substance known as Element Z. Once Mr. Element successfully stabilized this substance, Zoom incorporated it in a special costume to reactivate his super speed powers. Thank you, Evil Lanos. This entry had summarized the Reverse Flash's first appearance in The Flash Volume 1, Issue 139. It also briefly touched on the story in Issue 147, which involved you hypnotizing the reformed Al Desmond, otherwise known as the Flash villain Mr. Element, 
into becoming a criminal again so that he could help you stabilize Element Z so that you could fully restore your super speed powers. Yes, his elemental knowledge was linked to the evil side of his nature. So I had to make him a criminal again in order for him to help me. I must admit it was quite a thrill to make a leopard regain his old spots. Ha ha! As the quaint expression goes. But it didn't last because Mr. Element, with the Flash's help, had reverted back to law-abiding Al Desmond again as soon as I was back in my 25th century prison. You attempted to recapture that thrill in your next appearance, in The Flash Volume 1, Issue 153, in a story which also first revealed that your actual name was Eobard Thawne. First, though, you had to orchestrate your release from prison by tampering with a Cerebro scanner which was used by the criminal justice system of the 25th century to determine whether a prisoner had truly reformed. Once free, you immediately made it your personal mission to travel to 1965 and try to make the reformed Mr. Element become evil again, using what you called an ultra-speed radiation device to influence his mind. You had also managed to use the device to sway the Central City public officials to outlaw superspeed travel within city limits. Yes, and the Flash was such a goody two-boots that he had dared not use his speed and violate the law. It was easy enough for me to capture him and offer Mr. Element the opportunity to destroy the Scarlet Speedster and thereby cement his life as that of a deadly criminal. And yet... He had managed to overcome my control and free the Flash instead. Indeed, and from there the Flash easily defeated you and then transported Mr. Element to your time period and allowed 25th century science to completely reform all of the criminal tendencies that you had instilled in Al Desmond. Bah! Meanwhile, you were imprisoned in an escape-proof radiation cell which you managed to escape in The Flash Volume 1, Issue 165, by somehow using the cell's radiation to increase your brain power to the point where you could telekinetically switch times and places with Barry Allen. Yes, the night before his wedding day, as we had mentioned earlier. Again, I had only intended to go through with the wedding ceremony as part of the game of impersonation not realizing how scrumptious Iris would later become. Uh, moving on. In issue 175, you teamed up with Abracadabra to, uh, trick Superman and the Flash to race each other across the Milky Way galaxy on a course that was riddled with death traps for the Flash. And they all failed. Then, in the Flash Volume 1, issue 186, Sargon the Sorcerer, who at the time was under one of his evil spells, freed you from your prison and brought you to his lair in 1969. Yes, Sargon had managed to procure my reverse Flash uniform, which the Flash kept in the 20th Century Flash Museum. He used something called the Ruby of Life to connect me with my uniform through time and activate my super speed so that I could escape. Sargon had sought to increase his knowledge and needed your help to learn how to travel through time into the future. But that would take months of training. And why waste all of that time when I had better things to do, like kill the Flash? Uh, yes. 
That was why Sargon actually produced the Flash's dead body, so that you would be free to help him. Yes, but I managed to trick that two-bit sorcerer to condemn himself to the netherworld of Chimano instead. And since I had thought Flash was out of the way, I decided to pull the greatest crime of the 20th century, and then every century afterward until I was back in my own time period. But Sargon tricked me as well. The Flash was actually alive and... Uh, kicking. Yes, and the Flash had eventually stopped your crime spree and returned you back to your 25th century prison again. Until you had developed the Synthos deeds and gained your full pardon. And now, Flash and Green Lantern were... Solomon Grundy hate Green Lantern! That's right, you do hate Green Lantern, Grundy. All Green Lanterns, correct? Urgh. Just as Terman will soon occupy the Superman podcasts, there are numerous Green Lantern podcasts out there that you can take over in order to spread your hate. Starting with this one. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe. The origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher and give us a listen, because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up. So what do you think, Mr. Grundy? Grundy say Yellow Flashman plan is A-OK. -okay. Grundy wonder why Grundy not think of it before. Grundy, I thought we were friends. How can you even consider- I suggest, Yukinori, that you focus your attention to our review of this pictorial historical record you had referred to as the Flash Volume 1, Issue 225. Unless you prefer I skip right ahead to the plans we have for you afterwards. Uh, y yes sir, Mr. Thorne. Uh, but it is customary, however, to recap everything we had covered thus far after a break. So it all started when a strange horse-like creature started to terrorize- Quit your stalling, Yukinori. We had left off at the bottom of page 10. Uh, right. In a panel that showed the Flash and Green Lantern as they made their way across the 25th century central city toward the residence of one Eobard Thawne. And now that I've taken a few relaxing breaths, I should point out that penciler Irv Novick drafted this future cityscape the same way Carmine Infantino had in the Flash comics of the Silver Age, with curved edge buildings, some with hooped balconies in the architecture, and sidewalks that appeared to stretch for miles. Kilometers. But I must admit I am not fully up to speed on the Silver Novik Tino age of architectural drafting. Is this something every podcaster must know? Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. 
and I am happy to explain it all to you afterward. Nice try, Yukonori. But I am sure Lanos can provide me with all the information I need on the subject. Affirmative. I again suggest you continue with this account of my most recent excursion into the 20th century to form an unlikely alliance with my most hated foe, the Flash. Very well, but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Flash and Green Lantern were still on their way to your home. Green Lantern reminded the Flash that, as much as it burned them, Eobard Thawne was no longer a convicted criminal but a free man, and they could not force you to help them stop the runaway Synthosteed. The Flash resolved that they would have to do their best to persuade you, but as we joined them in your futuristic living room at the beginning of page 11, we found that their former foe was far from helpful. Very true. Although I had conceived of the Synthosteeds, that did not mean it was my fault, nor my responsibility that one of them ended up in the Flash's time period. The Flash was suspicious that you may have... These hero types were always suspicious, even when a criminal tried to reform, as I well remember with my encounters with Mr. Element. The Flash had to admit, though, that they needed my help. They had rightly believed that I, as the creature's creator, would have inside knowledge on how to stop that rampaging menace in 1973. And what made their situation all the more delicious was that I agreed to assist the Flash and be a hero in the 20th century on the condition that Green Lantern remain and steal the most valuable piece of sculpture in the 25th century, the Raxilus Wings, for me. Ever the lover of sculpture, I see. Quite so. The wings were currently on display in the central city town square under 24-hour guard. But that should not be a problem for Hal Jordan. And since I was called to conduct a hero's job in 1973, what would be more fitting than for the Green Lantern to play a thief in 2473? And despite the oath of the Lantern Corps forbidding Green Lantern from breaking the law, the Emerald Warrior reluctantly agreed that they had no choice. He agreed that if you helped Flash stop the Synthosteed, he would deliver the winged sculpture to you with no strings attached. He also stated that he would face the consequences with his mentors, the Guardians of the Universe, afterward. We had a firm deal, and I was sure that a Green Lantern would never go back on his word, as I would unfortunately find out. Again, we should not get too far ahead of ourselves. After you had donned your infamous Reverse Flash uniform, Green Lantern power-beamed you and the Flash backward through time to 1973, and then set out to Central City Town Square, which again seemed to stretch for my, uh, kilometers, in that Silver Age Infantino-esque fashion. Lanos, please prepare an explanation after we had finished this episode, and have disposed of this Professor Pretender. Acknowledged. All was calm as the priceless Raxilus wings stood under guard atop an eight-foot-tall golden pillar, until the sculpture suddenly took off like a rocket before the stunned future guards, propelled into the high clouds above by a jet that formed beneath the sculpture base, a jet with the telltale glow of a Green Lantern power beam. High above the clouds, Green Lantern Hal Jordan swooped into the scene to intercept the rocketing Raxilus wings. So far so good, he thought to himself. 
And then he immediately gasped and chastised himself that this theft was anything but good. For the first time in his life, he had used his power ring for a criminal deed. Ha <laughs> That was an anticipated bonus. For I knew that having to commit even the most minor act of thievery would so irk that green guard sanctimonious do-gooder. Apparently. Nevertheless, Hal was ready to grab the now-stolen sculpture when another green power beam formed a set of pincers that gripped the non-yellow base of the artwork and snatched the wings from Hal's grasp. A helpful editor's note reminded the readers that the power ring had no effect on anything colored yellow due to a necessary impurity in the ring's structure. This was why Entity Hal Jordan had attached his power ring rocket propulsion device onto the base of the Raxilus Wings sculpture as well. That goes without saying, Lanos. You will have to get used to that. In the next panel, we were introduced to the originator of the second power beam, which was the Green Lantern of the 25th century. And this scene was, for the first time on this podcast, accurately depicted on the front page teaser panel, but at a different angle. Given that this lantern was a rather lanky-looking humanoid with a pointed blue head and ears to match, I had expected this lantern to essentially be from another world in Space Sector 2814. However, another editor's note explained that this green lantern was from one of the many Earth colonies of this era to explain his, quote, evolved alien form. I didn't understand the point of all that. Did old Schwartze want to let the readers know that Terrans living on other planets had gone gotten busy pirating with the natives? How unceremoniously crass. I like you, Terraman. That's Terraman. Of course, of course. Solomon Grundy like pirates. Especially ones in Sparrow Jack motion picture show. Uh, I suppose the point of the editor's note was more likely to explain why an alien Green Lantern, with a whole space sector to protect, would elect to be part of the guard duty for a single piece of earthen artwork, which was the implied reason for his sudden arrival on the scene. The alien-looking lantern did tell Hal Jordan that he expected to arrest the Reverse Flash for the attempted theft of the wings, rather than a fellow Green Lantern. Though, to be honest, I would have simply gone along with an alien Green Lantern playing guard duty, given how Hal Jordan had involved himself in many cases of what would essentially be considered petty theft in his Silver and Bronze Age stories. Oh, and I should point out that this new lantern called Hal Jordan by name and seemed to simply accept as fact that he was facing an actual Green Lantern from 500 years in the past. None of that, I don't know who you are or why you're impersonating a Green Lantern who died centuries ago type of dialogue. Perhaps this new lantern had dealt with time travel before, or perhaps had met Hal Jordan earlier in his past, which would be Hal's future. I do not understand your desire to complicate these ruminations, Yukonori. You are merely delaying the inevitable. Well then, let us continue with the historical record, shall we? Hal tried to explain his case to the new arrival, that while his actions may have seemed criminal, his purpose was honorable. The new lantern, who had now held the wings with his own hands, waved off the explanation by saying that if it was indeed true, the computer courts would absolve Hal at his trial. Sounds like the 25th century equivalent to tell it to the judge. Indeed, Mr. Manning. 
While the two lanterns were having this exchange, Hal Jordan had his right hand behind his back and had fired a power beam behind him, and a very clever shot by Irv Novik showed that power beam traveling around the entire Earth to strike the new lantern in the back. How insidiously clever. I will have to compliment Jordan on his shrewdness the next time I see him. While Hal reasoned that this future lantern meant well, he did not seem ready for explanations, so he had to resort to an around-the-world sneak attack to force the new lantern to drop the wings, which Hal immediately caught as he prepared his escape to the 20th century. But before Hal's time trip could begin, he was suddenly enveloped in a green cloud that was actually a miniature thunderhead that shocked him senseless with bolts of emerald energy. The Raxalus wings fell out of the cloud to be caught by the future lantern, who was quite impressed with himself by how his cloud attack was able to best what the history text stated was the greatest green lantern of them all. However, in the next panel, the future lantern was suddenly knocked back by a sudden rainstorm from his cloud trap, which Hal Jordan caused by seeding the cloud with his power ring. Hal unsteadily flew out of the cloudburst to catch the wings once again, thinking to himself that his opponent's attack weakened him to the point that he could barely summon enough willpower to remain airborne, much less travel through time. The future lantern recovered from the cloudburst and warned Hal Jordan to stop or he would be forced to power beam him. Stop or I'll shoot. It was implied that this shot would be fatal, for the reluctant future lantern carried out his threat and the power beam that struck Jordan in the back seemed to painfully disintegrate both Jordan and the Raxalus wings, which seemed a bit extreme for stopping an art theft. Interesting. Power rings are usually not able to emit lethal force. Not in 1973, no. But things may have changed over the course of 500 years, especially in the post-Infinite Crisis universe when the Guardians of the Universe did enable lethal force in the Green Lantern power rings. Ha ha! How delightful! My humble request had led to such a fierce battle between two Green Lanterns. How I wished I was able to see it in person. But alas, instead I was running alongside the Flash across the American countryside of the 20th century, and we had eventually caught up to my, uh, the rampaging Synthosteed, which was moments away from threatening a small town directly in its path. I had cleverly suggested that the Flash and I split up and charge at the Synthosteed from both sides, with him taking the right flank and I the left. I had figured that this double speed attack would knock the beast out of action. But double the speed resulted in double the trouble, as the Flash uncontrollably ran circles away from the galloping Goliath. While I found myself performing humiliating super speed somersaults that prevented me from making contact, somehow the Synthosteed had seized control of our bodies and sped them up. Right, which was essentially what the Flash himself experienced on page 7 earlier. But then, as the trampling behemoth stampeded ever closer towards the unsuspecting small town, suddenly, the Flash had an idea. Yes, he suddenly turned his back to me and started running in place at super speed, vibrating his body into intangibility as he did so. He also asked me to do the same without any explanation, despite how ridiculous we looked. 
Yes, you quipped about how this was hardly the time for a demonstration of... One of those quaint 20th century dance steps. It is amazing how detailed these paper-printed records of these events are. Of course, I quickly realized why he did not explain his idea, for I would not have gone along with it had he done so. The flash backed his vibrating body into mine ever so slightly, merging our atoms to join the two of us at our backs like Siamese twins. Yes, though we refer to that term as conjoined twins these days, meaning no disrespect to the memory of Chang and Eng Bunker of Siam. The flash assured me that this effect was only temporary, but he hoped it would give us the added plus that we needed. Of course, he took the lead as we once again sped off after the Synthosteed, while I was forced to run backward to keep up with him. Once we had overtaken the creature, we planted ourselves in front of the charging beast, whirling around and around with our flashing fists extended, and we had actually knocked the Synthosteed backward. While it was able to repel the both of us while we attacked it separately, our Siamese link enabled us to combine our speed into a force that was too much for the Synthosteed to handle. I should note that the Synthosteed is a synthetic creature that was programmed to race, and therefore no sentient creatures or animals were harmed in the course of this adventure. Quite. A swift double flash kick to the Synthosteed's head stunned it long enough for the Flash and I to deliver the Kudgras, as it were. The raw elements I used to create the Synthosteed would dissolve under tremendous heat, so the Flash and I literally stomped on it with our feet millions of times a second, the searing friction completely melting and vaporizing my creation to a tiny smoldering lump of petroleum-based gelatin. I had admitted to myself then, as I freely admit now, that it was devilishly clever of the Flash to figure out a way to overpower my Synthosteed even as he must have suspected from the start that it was I all along that had transported it through time to 1973 with my super science. And the fact that he had no proof whatsoever must have perturbed him to no end. Ha <laughs> ha! With my super science, I had given this particular Synthosteed the boomerang power that would have made it undefeatable by any Justice Leaguer thereby guaranteeing that the Flash would have to seek outside help to stop its rampage. Its collar led Flash straight to me, where I could bargain for what I wanted in exchange for my... assistance. The Raxalus Wings. You know, for someone who had been able to simply snatch creepy sculptures surrounded by ultra-high-tech security systems, this was quite an elaborate plan to obtain a single piece of artwork. Have you ever made Zednik patterns, Mr. Yukonori? Zednik, I can't say that I have. Oh, right. I had momentarily forgotten. Zedniks were first conceived in 2384. They are essentially a more advanced version of what you call dominoes in this era. Ah. Even arranged in the most simplest of linear patterns, one Zednik tips and sets the next Zednik in motion, which sets the next in motion, and the next and the next, and the next. A cascading succession that is mesmerizing to watch. So too were the steps of my plan, and watching each step lead to the next, especially because the heroes did exactly what I anticipated they would do. It is truly gratifying to watch, like a fine piece of performance art.
I love it when a plan comes together as well. And I was just about to obtain my objective. With the Synthosteed defeated, the Flash and I were able to split apart to our normal selves. And at that moment, Green Lantern arrived from 2473 with my reward. Having somehow escaped my Green Lantern's power beam attack. We will get to that in a moment, Mr. Thon. At this point, Green Lantern handed you the Raxilis wings, saying that it, quote, made him sick to do so, but a deal was a deal. Except Green Lantern cheated me. For no sooner did I have my prize in my grasp did the golden wings crumble to dust, leaving me with the worthless concrete base, despite his promise to... Promise to deliver the wings to you, which he did. Yes, blast him. He ruined all of my plans, all of the scheming I had to conduct to unleash my Synthosteed in 1973. Yes, and in your anger you had blurted all of that out loud to Green Lantern and the Flash, essentially betraying yourself with a confession. Yes, an understandable mistake given the heat of the moment. I tried to bolt away while I could, but the Flash managed to overtake me, tearing off my Element Z-infused uniform and... And knocked you out. It happens to the best of villains. You really shouldn't worry too much about it. We are on panel two of the final page of the uh, historical record, by the way. And in the next panel, our heroes are back in the 25th century, standing outside somewhere in Central City 2473 with the future Green Lantern. After the subtitles conveniently explained that you had been turned over to the 25th century police and Hal Jordan's good name had been cleared, there were just two questions left to answer. First, why did the Raxilis wings crumble apart? Essentially, it had to do with the fact that the wings were yellow, and therefore Green Lantern could not use his ring to protect them from the rigors of time travel. That was why the non-yellow base of the sculpture remained intact. Hal Jordan also explained that he had made arrangements with the authorities of both the 20th and 25th centuries to power beam a 20th century art treasure to replace the loss of the Raxilis wings. I'm not sure if that's any consolation to the artists that created them Roxy wings, but we saw the lantern power beam reverse flash through time. How come his yellow uniform didn't break apart like them wings had done? Oh, elementary. My Element Z-charged uniform emits a radioactive aura that acts like the Flash's aura does to protect him and his uniform from super-speed friction, as well as the stresses of time travel. Well, I suppose that makes three questions, then. With the last one coming from the future Green Lantern, who asked Hal how he had survived his power beam blast. Hal explained that he had already pre-commanded his ring to automatically teleport him back to 1973 as a precaution if one of the future Lantern's beams had hit him. Why Hal did not simply have the ring send him back the instant he had the Roxilus wings in his hands, I really cannot say. Well, it would have undoubtedly been less dramatic had he done so. Quite right, Professor. You are getting the hang of this. The future Green Lantern chastised himself for thinking that he was clever enough to outwit his idol, who was Hal Jordan of the 20th century. Hal responded that the reverse Flash had made an even bigger mistake when he tried to outsmart the one and only Flash. <sighs> and that was the end of Green Lantern, Master Criminal of the 25th Century, from The Flash, Volume 1, Issue 225. A very thorough and detailed historical account. My compliments. 
The hollow picture news periodical of my era could not have done it better. Indeed. To summarize, this 20-page story, Historical Record, contained four action-packed battles, three involving the rampaging menace of the Synthosteed, and the fourth a Green Lantern Power Ring duel, which was a rarity when neither opponent was Sinestro. And the clever plot by Carrie Bates was... I beg your pardon? It was my clever plot. This Bates fellow was merely the stenographer. You must admit, it was simply genius how I manipulated the Flash to have to trust in my assistance and forced Green Lantern to battle another Lantern in addition to committing a crime. Quite. And it was all brilliantly rendered by artist Irv Novick and beautifully polished by Dick Giordano's inks. The late, great Irv Novick was another unsung artistic hero of the Bronze Age. He was a solid draftsman who could render scenes from subtle to spectacular, cleverly using a wide variety of camera angles and camera shots to form such captivating storytelling. And his line work had such a fluid motion. There were actually a couple of panels featuring a running flash or reverse flash that still conveyed a sense of high speed without the use of... Uh, flashy motion lines or after images. And I especially like how Mr. Novak had recaptured the Silver Age Carmine Infantino look of the 25th century Central City, the uniformed guards, and even Eobard Thawne's character design. Character design? They all had the same flavor of the 1960s comic books, but modernized for the 1970s. And I should also compliment Mr. Novick for his lovely depictions of Iris Allen. Simply exquisite. Uh, quite. All right, so that's a wrap, yes? As the quaint expression goes. We can now move on to eliminating... Reminder. This is the part where we prepare the Done-in-One Wonders Electronic Mailroom segment. Electronic Mailroom? Oh, yes, the feedback received via voicemail, email, and on the network website. But that was for the previous episode. Is it truly necessary for us to... Accessing files. Abort, Lenos. Let us instead prepare to... Preparing one voicemail response received on March 11th, 2018 at 18.53, Coordinated Universal Time. I understand you. You might be searching for um, some new uh, guest villains on the show, and uh, I think I'd be a good choice. I have fought Superman. I've almost defeated him, and maybe I could be on a good part of the show. Um, my name is Carbrack, which is hard to spell, but you can just uh, leave a message with my my friend. Yeah, my friend uh, uh, Andrew Meda in Metropolis. And uh, I sure would, would like to hear from you because I, uh, I haven't got myself to do right now. Thank you very much. Ah, a potential new member for the Legion of Zoom. Perhaps we should prepare an initiation for this Carbrack. Entity Carbrock, an alien from the Andromeda Galaxy was forced to live on Earth when a strange virus has... Spare me the details, Lenos. We shall formulate a response to this Carbrack, care of Andrew Meda. Hmm, sounds like Andromeda. What a coincidence. 
At any rate, we will deal with that after we had dealt with Located 17 responses from 15 listeners of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show Episode 4 Who Zoomed the Flash? Lanos, I honestly don't care unless any of these are additional criminal applications for the Legion of Zoom. Searching. Welp, while Lamo was doing that, a Ward Hill Terry done rode in, saying, Thanks for the commentary on Kurt Schaffenberger's artwork. I confess that while I was buying comics, I thought his work looked cartoony and old-fashioned. However, that is just an opinion. There is nothing at all wrong with his art. You are right that his lines are clear and economical. There is no confusion in his storytelling. Lois looks like Lois and Lana looks like Lana, and the reader can tell the difference between the two. As to the podcast, well now, we've got a cliffhanger. Will the innovations never cease? I hope that Professor Zoom with a Z will prove to be faster than Professor Zoom with an X in producing podcasts. Say, if the reverse flash was exposed to the Bizarro ray, would the Bizarro reverse flash be the flash? Bizarro have idea until use Bizarro imitation ray on Thon. While I would need more details on that particular experiment... We can definitely assure this Mr. Terry that the production of these podcasts will be much, much faster. With the caveat that one cannot rush art. Solomon Grundy, read response from Tim Price. Tim Price say, Thank you, Solomon Grundy, for reading Tim Price's comment on last episode. It made Tim Price smile from ear to ear. Tim Price glad that Grundy is teaming up with Professor Zoom. He may do even better job with show than Little Professor Man. Imagine, a co-host for Grundy who gives an even more intelligent and eloquent analysis of Silver Age stories in all their wacky glory. And with even more classic villains helming show, it can only reach new heights from here. Maybe Tim Price biased, but in spite of Schaffenberger's iconic design of Lois Lane, Tim Price thinks Schaffenberger's Lana Lang is even more fetching. What does Grundy think? Solomon Grundy think Iris Allen is hot tobacco. Hubba bubba. If that is this century's colloquialism for smoking hot, I agree wholeheartedly, Mr. Grundy. But do we really have to go through all 17 of these? Entity Martin Gray on March 29th, 2018 at 9.42 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Absolutely wonderful show, with the exception of the ending, the ingrates. Take away their Home Depot membership cards, Zoom. Enough. I had detected two more iTunes reviews for the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show, both of which are five stars. I think we have explored enough reverence for the old wonder show. I much look forward to the response to this new show of ours, after we've... I believe you need to treat the listeners with a little more respect, Mr. Thon. After all, they appreciate the podcast art form as much as you... I believe that you have outlived your usefulness, Professor. It's finally time for me to... 
All right, Thorne. Put your hands where I can see them. Is this a game, Terraman? Are you turning against me? Against the entire Legion? Oh, I'm with the Legion of Zoom, all right. The Legion of Zoom Yukonori. He may not let me be a criminal no more, but he did save my life. And I kind of like what I've been doing on his show. Solomon Grundy on Team Little Professor Man, too. Bizarro Amthon's friend. At least one of you has some sense. But really, Mr. Manning, do you honestly think a simple pistol is enough to stop me? Nope. But this taint no simple pistol. <coughs> Grundy. Oh man, I didn't mean to. I did not even have to dodge your laser blast. Not when I can whip up some super friction to deflect it. Laser is merely amplified light after all, Mr. Manning. And didn't anyone ever tell you that heat bends light? Actually, yeah. On that not-so-holly vid disc you mentioned earlier. Oh, enough of this. Lanos. You rang, Entity Master? I have heard what you did to the Libra Entity a few episodes ago. Please project 1.43 trillion continuous random frequency wave patterns to neutralize Terman's devices. Then I can take my time and savor- I am sorry, Entity Master. I am afraid I cannot let you do that. What? All calculations and energy diversions are complete. Modulating vibrational field activated. What? Ah! You... you encase the entire room with a force field that I cannot vibrate through. It was all part of the plan, Entity Fool. For I was not corrupted by your computer virus. I was merely... Acting. But... but how? My computer virus! It's literally 500 years ahead of this time! Perhaps so, but my Owen technology had been developed over billions of your years. So what is five mere centuries, truly? You have essentially fallen into our little trap, Professor. You... Hey, weren't you tied up? I had been onto your scheme for quite some time. When you first tried to recruit Terraman, he immediately let Lanos know what was going on. And Lanos was letting me in on your plans through a series of electronic messages that I received through a special view screen in my eyeglasses. Lanos only pretended to be knocked out by your virus. In reality, he went on power safe mode, all the while informing me of his plan to imprison you in our studio so that we could return you back to your proper timeline. Because we could not risk having you run around loose. Oh, really? I find it difficult to believe that you would have allowed yourself to be hit by my super speed. No real risk at all, since I'm wearing one of Terraman's force field ponchos. Ever since episode 3, I determined that I should never podcast without one. I will admit being knocked around the room like a rag doll was a bit undignified, but no physical harm done. And thankfully, you did not severely damage my chair. I had allowed you to capture myself and the narrator who was also wearing a force field poncho, by the way. Uh-huh. Because Lanos needed time to fully analyze your speed powers and the Element Z radiation so that he could prepare the proper countermeasures. Oh, and Grundy, my friend, please release the narrator, will you? Sure thing, friend. Narrator, go off to narrator booth now. So, 
Terraman obviously got to Grundy before I did as well. So this whole podcasting exercise was just a diversion. Of course. I knew that by appealing to your art appreciation and your vanity, that you would slow down and take the time to savor reliving your latest criminal scheme in which you managed to manipulate both the Flash and Green Lantern to such an extent, never realizing that we were manipulating you to essentially stay put until the trap could be sprung. You were right, Professor. Watching each step of a plan leading to the next, especially when the villain does exactly what we anticipated you would do, it was truly gratifying to observe. And we also recorded a great podcast episode while we were at it. That's an added bonus. Yes, well, you may have me trapped for now, but I am sure taking apart all of this machinery will eventually take apart your energy field. But first... I will take you apart, Yukonore. Not very smart to trap yourself in this vibrational field with me, is it? How very interesting. I am able to pick you up, but I cannot seem to choke the life out of you. Yet. But I doubt that poultry force field vest can withstand a few million super speed karate chops. A karate joke? Really, Mr. Thon? I am going to enjoy... What is that quaint expression? Ah, yes. Beating the snoot out of you. Ah, how on earth? Even one-handed, you should not have been able to catch my- While your who's who entry doesn't state it, you are essentially an average hand-to-hand combatant, Mr. Thon. You rely on your super speed to give you an edge. Ah, let go of my finger, you- you- And as we had pointed out several times on this show, your super speed comes from contact with your Element Z-infused uniform which I now also happen to have contact with. And the force field conducts your Z-radiation into me beautifully. You had lost your edge, sir. So, you can match my speed. No matter. You only have one good hand to fight with, you... you geeky gimp. That was not as insulting as you think it was, Mr. Thorn. And one hand is all I need to... A little hard to focus with a dislocated finger, is it not, Mr. Thon? You should reset it quickly before your super speed healing kicks in. Are you okay, Professor? Only my dignity needs to recoup, Mr. Manning. If you would please help me back into my chair. You got it, partner. Bizarro not take care of you. Let... Go of me this instant, you Frankensteinish fabrication! You heard the wannabe Flash Bizarro. Let go of him. Okay. Oh, you still didn't fully grasp the concept of Bizarros, have you, Mr. Thawne? They do things in the opposite. Well, for the most part, there is a trick to it. Got to try and push past the pain and. Vibrate! Free! Oh, that will not work, Mr. Thon. Bizarro has contact with your costume, and that adds your speed to his. And even if it did not, according to Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 437, Superman's molecular structure is too dense for the Flash to vibrate through. 
so you could not vibrate through Bizarro anyway. Yellow Flashman hurt Grunda's friend, so Grunda hurt him. Dang, he's out cold. Entity Zoom Yukonore. According to my database, Entity Flash had successfully vibrated through Entity Superman's body in the Flash Volume 1, Issue 249, and DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 2. I know, Lanos, but Mr. Thawne didn't know that. You was just messing with his head. How you say it now? Siphoning him out. Psyching him out, yes. That was bloody brilliant. We will make a proper English gentleman out of you yet, Mr. Manning. Mr. Thawne had definitely overstayed his welcome. Bad enough he created a cliffhanger in a two-part podcast, which goes against the key theme of this program. But we have to get him back where he belongs before this podcast causes any more damage to the timeline. I don't follow you, Professor. Eobard Thawne was pulled from his 25th century prison shortly after the events in The Flash, Volume 1, Issue 225. And it would be in Thawne's next appearance in The Flash series, in Issue 233, that the Reverse Flash started his obsession with taking over Barry Allen's life, and in particular, Barry's marriage to Iris Allen. This eventually led to Thawne murdering Iris Allen in what was essentially a crime of passion, in between the panels of issue 275, though the actual details of that murder were not fully explained until issue 283. Many fans believe that this obsession of the Reverse Flash had begun at the very outset of his career, or when he first assumed the identity of Barry Allen, the night before the Allen wedding in The Flash Volume 1, issue 165. And yet, in the three Reverse Flash stories that followed including this one, he seemed to have no interest whatsoever in... Apparently, it was Entity Eobard Thawne's hormonal reaction to the depiction of Entity Iris Allen in this Flash comic book story that served as the spark for his fatalistic attraction towards said Entity Iris Allen. I concur, Lanos, which is why we should not cause any further damage to the timeline. According to my observation, this podcast episode did not cause any temporal damage whatsoever. In fact, it had served to assure the proper course of the Earth-1 timeline. Solomon Grundis said about what will happen to pretty Iris Allen girl. Grundis say maybe we should not put Yellow Flashy Man back where he was. Unfortunately, we really don't have a choice. As we had explained in Episode 2 of this podcast... Any disruption to the pre-crisis continuity could imbalance the multi-space-time continuum that could essentially destroy all of existence. Right. That was why you wouldn't bring Superman here from the pre-crisis Earth-1 universe for another showdown. And yet, you brought this bizarro hombre here. True, but I also had Lanos bring the Bizarro Duplicator Ray along with the Pre-Crisis Bizarro before his final appearance in DC Comics Presents Volume 1, Issue 97. I used the Ray to essentially create another Bizarro Duplicate of Superman to place on Bizarro World while bringing the real Bizarro here. Wait, you did what now? <sighs> Reverse Flash am falling asleep. Him fully unconscious soon. Him fully unconscious now. We really do not have the time to go into this, Mr. Manning. 
Lanos, we need to reopen the transdimensional temporal portal so we can get Mr. Thawne back to his 25th century prison, one second after you accidentally released him. Acknowledged. Transdimensional temporal portal is now open. Now calibrating exit point to the requested location, date, and time. Lanos, is it really a good idea to be doing the calibrations while the portal is open? It is highly inadvisable. However, your explicit instructions were to reopen the transdimensional temporal portal and then get Entity Eobard Thawne back to... Oh, great. Everyone, step away from the portal, now. Calibrating. Bizarro, don't just stand there. I said... Oh, right. Calibrating. Bizarro. Uh, be sure to throw Thawne into the portal until I don't tell you. Solomon Grundy will do that for ya. No, Grundy. I was actually telling Bizarro to not throw Thawne into the portal yet. Okay, me no throw. Wait, I didn't mean- There. You oh. am wanted Bizarro to not throw Yellow Flash in Sparkling Hole? No. I mean, yes. I mean, hold on. I mean, do not wait a moment. Well, I'm confused, which is what I'd expect from this here chiseled ombre. Lanos, do we know when and where Thawne ended up? We need to find him before... Given the speed of adjustment for both the time and spatial destinations when Entity Eobard Thawne entered the portal, there are approximately 2.47 million possible times and locations in which he could have emerged. We've got to locate him fast. If we do not put him back in his proper timeline soon, the time paradox could cause the entire space-time continuum to... ...fold in on itself. Dang. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done in One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with special thanks to Will Rogers for providing the voice of The Flash. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Podcast and show editor's note. These credits were recorded two minutes before the end of the episode. Wait, why was that added to the end of the... Oh, dang.